0: Then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois.
1: Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix. No less
2: a figure than Chief Justice Warren Burger, a conservative appointed by Nixon, complained after he retired that the Second Amendment, quote, has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat, fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime, end quote. That he might as well have just had a gun himself and been shooting it in the air, screaming that for a show called Fraudsters. I mean, it's incredible when I
3: read that. What do you think he was really, what was he talking about there? Well, what he was talking about, and he God knows, he he didn't, I don't know if he saw what was coming, but it was it was still the 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 whole regard, the judicial regard, the Supreme Court interpretation of what the Second Amendment meant meant, when it even came up. It wasn't a big deal, right? It just wasn't a big deal. It was like, well, that's this weird thing from the 18th century, "Ah, militias, ah, whatever. But but by the time he said that in the early 90s, the the NRA and the and the and the gun fetishists and the gun extremists. We're we're, we're trying to reinterpret the meaning of the Second Amendment to mean that every American could have not just a gun, but essentially almost practically they they wished and they're getting there, any kind of gun, as many guns without regulation, without control as they wished.
2: After fraudsters. I'm Cena Gaznavi at CN on all social media. Justin Williams is here with us in the virtual studio. Justin underscore Williams underscore comedy on Instagram and on Facebook. You can find him as well. Of course, as always, send him an email. Justin will show up at your home. We've got a riveting episode that we just finished up last week on Wayne LaPierre. And it was not maybe the most bombastic episode, but it was politically...
4: Dramatic. What do you think, Justin? I felt it was the podcast version of John Adams starring Paul Giamatti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I think I think
2: it definitely worked out. I mean, I love the response we got so far. Some people, you know, liked it. I think I didn't at any of, like, the gun rights people yet. But some people are talking about it on our Discord. If you want to join, send us an email at frosterslpn at gmail.com. If you want to talk about it, but our Discord link in bio and all of my social media – So let's get into it, right? Justin and I said last time we'd start with the history or the origins of the Second Amendment. And now we know that the intended meaning of it was not what we're dealing with now. And intentions don't really matter when you're dealing with the Supreme Court that can actually change the original intention. What you heard at the top was Kurt Anderson talking about his New York Times bestselling book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire. And he's referring to Justice Berger, who is a Supreme Court justice that on his way out was talking about how the Second Amendment and special interest groups have have construed the Second Amendment into a complete widespread fraud. But before we get into that interview, I want to start with how the NRA was founded and what it was like in the early years. Jason Bellini from The Wall Street Journal did a nice summary, so we'll use that a bit here to get us started.
5: The self-described oldest civil liberties organization in U.S. history was founded in the wake of the Civil War. In 1871, Union officers concerned by the poor marksmanship they had witnessed in battle formed the NRA to train young men how to shoot better. By 1903, the NRA promoted shooting as a sport at colleges and universities and later created a summer youth camp. Before World War I, the NRA helped arm and train civilians. Before World War II, the NRA offered its ranges to the military for marksmanship courses. During the interwar years, after the repeal of Prohibition, the NRA became active in politics. In 1934, Congress moved to regulate guns for the first time, particularly those used by gangsters like Al Capone. The NRA, through its new Legislative Affairs Division and new magazine, The American Rifleman, spurred a letter-writing campaign to limit proposed gun restrictions. The final bill banned machine guns and sawed off shotguns. So, that's important, right? Remember The American Rifleman. That's also important
6: there.
2: So what's important there, too, is that the NRA's primary goal was to be an association that would promote and encourage rifle shooting on a scientific basis. <laughs> Marksmanship after the Civil War. Can you imagine? You mean all those individuals bearing arms were actually bad at shooting? Hmm, I wonder yeah, why. Yeah, you know,
4: in fairness, if you paid me in whiskey and gave me a model 1861 musket, I couldn't hit an SRI in Mississippi either. <laughs> yeah,
2: In 1925, we have the NRA's first financial scandal in this case. There was an actual secretary for the NRA that was on the board, and they were accused of embezzlement. So what did the NRA do when they were faced with their first financial scandal? Well, they did what any real, honest organization should do. They cleaned house completely, reorganized its board, and from that moment forward— they released yearly financial statements to the public, itemizing how they spent every dollar. Now, again, put another pin in that. This is all going to come back like a beautiful curb your enthusiasm. What a great example of accountability. Good night, great, everyone. Great show. Great show. We'll see you. We'll see you next week, everybody. You know, anything better than Al Capone was a win at that time. A few years later, prohibition gets lifted in 1933, so people can finally drink. Though, but Congress is like, we should probably, if everyone's gonna be drunk, regulate the guns, maybe? I mean, we all remember what happened to the militia guys that would drink and have guns. They would shoot each other. Maybe maybe they didn't remember that. I guess, you know, they weren't alive, I guess. So in 1934, Congress passed the NFA, National Firearms Act. But surely this would be overturned, this absurd infringement on the individual rights of citizens. In 1939, an Arkansas federal district court charged Jack Miller and Frank Layton with violating the NFA when they were transporting a sawed off double barrel 12 gauge shotgun in interstate commerce. And so interstate commerce means you just cross state lines. And when you cross state lines, that means you're under the purview of the federal government because the federal government in the Constitution says you can regulate interstate commerce. Miller and Layton argued that the NFA violated their Second Amendment rights to keep and bear arms. The district court agreed and dismissed the case, letting them go. They said, you're allowed to carry and transport a
4: 12-gauge shot-off shotgun. Crossing state lines with a sawed off shotgun, was this 1939 or Mad Max? Yeah,
2: you that's know, an interesting point. I feel like in a certain time period, everything before World War II was Mad Max. Like there were swaths of the country where there was just no law?
4: (laughs) I like the argument, yeah, because they're like, hey, we have to regulate that because that's technically interstate commerce. And, you know, I bet you Miller and Leighton were like, yeah, we were going to give somebody the business end of this sawed off shotgun.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So the Supreme Court actually reversed this decision, holding that the Second Amendment does not guarantee an individual right to keep and bear a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun. It's almost like the Supreme Court at that time was like, yeah, there's a Second Amendment, but there's also laws and reasonable regulation. Writing for the unanimous court, United States v. Miller, Justice James Clark McReynolds, God, what a name, reasoned that because possessing a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun does not have a reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, the Second Amendment does not protect the possession of such an instrument.
4: If anything, I'd say that a sawed-off shotgun at short range is certainly efficient. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, but it's also weird here that they were like, okay, like we're really talking a lot about a sawed-off shotgun and like, does a militia need a sawed-off shotgun? Like, if I was there, I'd maybe be like, listen, what if we're in, like, close-quarter combat with our militias storming a house
4: or something? We need a sawed-off shotgun already. No, they <laughs> didn't make any of those arguments. So the worst militia. It's just a militia in giant overcoats. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Justin. I, I want to go back to
2: a cool autumn day in Schenectady, New York, November 8th, 1949. Wayne Robert LaPierre Jr. is born. He's the son of Wayne Robert LaPierre Sr., a General Electric accountant, and his mom was Hazel Marie Gordon LaPierre. Our former producer, Hazel, was named after Wayne LaPierre's wife. No, I'm just, that's not right. That's not, <laughs> she, would be, <laughs> she would be upset with it. <laughs> but Hazel Marie Gordon LaPierre was a native of Connecticut. Then at age five... The family moved to Roanoke, Virginia. Justin, you wanna take a guess on where old Winning Wayne went to high school in Roanoke, Virginia?
4: I'm gonna guess at a school that I imagine was renamed in honor of Martin Luther King around 1998. <laughs> <laughs> From some Confederate general. Patrick Henry High School. Give me my diploma or give me death.
2: Yeah. Yo. I mean, the irony there, who would have thought? In 1968, LaPierre goes to college at Siena College in Loudonville where he was going to get a bachelor's degree in education and political science. But it's the 60s and there were other stuff happening as well. The civil rights movement was in full swing. But in some places, states were nervous that black people were arming themselves. And you know, White lawmakers at that time were very supportive of people having guns. Isn't that right, Justin? (laughs) Yeah,
4: Cena, you're going to want to sit down for this.
2: No, no, you're wrong. They love the Second Amendment. They want all people
4: to have guns, (laughs) Justin. Uh, No, in in fact... uh, During the height of the civil rights struggle, the Black Panther Party of Self-Defense in California took advantage of the state's open carry laws and started carrying shotguns and confronting police officers, even being as bold to open carry shotguns on the courthouse steps of the California Supreme Court. And in response for that, the governor of California, a liberal <laughs> named Ronald Reagan, signed in the most comprehensive gun control package in the United States.
2: Ronald Reagan, you mean, you mean these white lawmakers didn't want the Black Panthers carrying openly shotguns? Oh, interesting. <laughs> I stand corrected, sir.
4: Well, normally, I, I support the right to bear arms. But uh, there are, are uh, black people in leather jackets, and uh, we can't have that, you know. I'm, I'm Ronald Reagan. I love black people, but,
2: I mean, these aren't, these aren't my kind of black people. Am I right? These are thugs.
4: I, I'm going to become president and, and, and distribute crack cocaine in their communities in order <laughs> to uh, stop this activism.
2: <laughs> Laugh it up now.
4: But it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then I'll have Nancy say don't do drugs. <laughs> Jokes on her. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you know what's funny too? Here the NRA, the the standard bearers of the Second Amendment, literally helped write that bill. The Mulford Act of nineteen sixty seven. Also, in the sixties, JFK was shot in sixty three. Now, I know there is an official Last Podcast Network stance on the JFK assassination that it was probably aliens, the CIA, and a cooperation of a variety of other different parties. But <laughs> if we roll with the classic – I hope I get like an edit note from Henry or Marcus or someone who's just like, listen, you can't – you've got to toe the line on, on the, the JFK assassination. <laughs> But <laughs> so, if we roll with the single shooter Lee Harvey Oswald theory, he bought his $12 gun in the American Rifleman. And after Kennedy was shot, Congress tried to pass a ban on mail-order guns. Justin, what do you think about that? Is that an infringement on rights? Why would they want to pass a
4: ban on mail-order guns? Well, they mostly wanted to cut it down because of a convenience issue. They didn't have Amazon Prime back then, so the shipping delays caused all sorts of frustration for people that were looking to like murder an icon within like a week and a half. <laughs> uh, they're like, if I have to wait two weeks to murder an iconic figure in American history, that's unreasonable, and that... Is why they, they they brought that ban in. Congress. And you
2: know what? It was delayed. It was actually delayed because they still wanted those mail ordered guns to get there quickly. Because after sixty eight, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, they ended up passing the Gun Control Act of nineteen sixty eight. MLK was shot on April fourth, sixty eight. Six months later, LBJ was able to pass.
4: Yeah, because you know, also contextually, right? If you if If the leader of the, you know, nonviolent wing of the civil rights movement is murdered, it makes the militant wing of the civil rights movement uh, seem much more reasonable. So, you know, like everybody who follows Malcolm Uh, X or the Black Panthers actually start arming themselves and preparing for, like, revolution. Wow, that's a great point. I didn't realize that. Okay, so here's a
2: clip from Frontline's documentary, NRA Under Fire. What you'll hear first is President Lyndon B. Johnson just before he signs the Gun Control Act, then the narrator, then J. Warren Cassidy, a former NRA executive vice president, the position that Wayne LaPierre would end up holding as well.
7: Effective crime control remains, in my
0: judgment, effective gun control.
6: Those were fighting words for some in the NRA. The 1968 gun control bill banned mail order sales and restricted some purchases.
3: NRA people said, wait a minute, we've got, to, uh, we've got other things to worry about than,
1: than teaching guys how to shoot or how to hunt and so forth or collect guns. And that's when, that was the transformative period. So let's go back to Jason Bellini as well from
2: the Wall Street Journal and play that clip.
4: You also got every, every white shopkeeper that still lives in An urban area after King's assassination and the riots is also arming
5: themselves. The Gun Control Act of 1968 put new limits on firearm sales, regulating who could buy and sell them. The NRA's leadership expressed ambivalent support for the bill. But in the 1970s, with crime on the rise, a rift developed within the organization between those who wanted to focus on training, hunting and outdoorsmanship and members who wanted to take a hard line on Second Amendment rights. Okay, so let's
2: pause here for a second.
5: More people...
2: Are dying, more civil rights leaders are dying, and Congress reacts and passes laws to reduce the way that they were killing civil rights leaders and presumably to de escalate a potential civil rights war. Is that right, Justin? Is that fair to say?
4: Uh, No, but it's also like, you know it's also about white people are arming themselves because white flight hasn't completed itself yet. So when you combine deindustrialization, you know, urban unrest after, uh, you know, the assassinations of, you know, Martin Luther King and, you know, Robert and John F Kennedy and Malcolm X, right. Uh, you know, white people are also arming themselves to like protect themselves. And then black people are feeling they have to arm themselves to either protect themselves from the government or who knows, you know? So yeah, it's, this is, this is a good time for the gun business. Then also you have just like basic uh, fear of urban crime. Urban crime is actually going to start spiking through the, you know, when you talk about like 70s through the 90s. Uh, the war on drugs is also like getting ready to be the context for all of this. So there's all kinds of people are buying guns. The, the murder rate in America is going to go off the charts. And so...
2: The, from the NRA's perspective, why do they see this as, I guess, if everyone's arming themselves, they want to protect those rights of white people that are scared of some sort of, of escalation of violence?
4: Then. Yeah, I mean, because it's really the specter. If you're talking about... Uh you know, world history during the 60s and 70s, you're talking about also like anti-colonial like revolts <laughs> across Africa and Asia, right. where it's very much this idea of the colored people of the world are going to cast off white domination. And like if you're like white, right? Like that that kind of politics circle, circling around and people arming themselves and like Vietnam and all these things, that makes a ton of white people nervous, right? Uh, so, you know, you know, the, the NRA has like a huge audience here. This is where the fear of crime and crime being associated specifically with urban, poor black people is really going to take off in America.
2: And this is, again, we're talking about fear here. Last episode, it was about fear. This episode, again, fear, fear among the white dominant class that are arming themselves. And you would think now, is this one Wayne LaPierre? Rolls into the NRA and starts molding it? No, no. He actually graduated from Siena College of Louisville in 1972 with a bachelor's degree in education and political science. And he also got a master's in government and politics from Boston College. A few years later, LaPierre also enrolled in a Ph.D. program at Boston University in 1973, but ended up dropping out to assist a Democrat in running for the Virginia state legislature. More on that with kurt later vietnam is also obviously happening here while he was going to college but when he landed an internship with the new york state legislature this is kind of how he managed to avoid getting drafted in the military he was in college with a student deferment he also later received a medical deferment which is interesting the same category that donald trump
4: got we don't know if it was bone spurs but we'll see i don't, well hopefully we can find out one of my favorite donald trump quotes is uh when he says, like, uh, you know, he, I guess he, like, got chlamydia or something, and he's like, well, that was my Vietnam. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so,
2: you know, it's interesting, too, because people that talk about Wayne, you know, I know he avoided the draft and everything like that, but he, he was also just, like, an awkward brainiac type. He wasn't, like, some weird zealot type figure. Another really interesting point from his early years He had a soft spot for children and was a special ed teacher in Troy, New York, with poor and developmentally
4: disabled students. Here we go again. A fraudster, as always, can do some good. Imagine that. He actually goes back to that same school in Troy, New York, every year and distributes AR-15s to all of the children. It's a very nice thing that (laughs) he does.
2: (laughs) You're a vulnerable class of people. Here's an AR-15. Protect yourself. But obviously that good is is short-lived. When we come back, we begin the march to insanity of the NRA and Wayne LaPierre joining up with them.
0: For 25 years, nothing has tasted better after a hard day's work than a Mike's Hard Lemonade. It's because since day one, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. We use three kinds of lemons. All handpicked from family farms, then blended to perfection and cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days. Deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard, so is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois.
1: Emmy Award winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A
2: back, everybody. The shift in the NRA was percolating, but everything really came to a head in 1977 at the revolt in Cincinnati. The NRA had not done a full-throated defense of the individual right to bear arms. Here's a clip of Frank Smith, author of The NRA, and Unauthorized History, where he recounts what happened that day in 1977.
7: The change occurred in 1977 in the Cincinnati revolt. This was a time where the NRA had become as green as Sierra Club uh, without exaggeration, supporting the polar bear decades before they were in danger, supporting wildlife conservation, advocating attacks on ammunition. At the same time, planning on moving their operations to the Rockies to make it much more of a shooting club and getting away from the politics. Hardliners in the NRA upset about NRA support for the Gun Control Act of 1968, then organized uh, a takeover in, at the annual meeting in Cincinnati, where they fired the leadership one by one, the old guard, and then they replaced them with themselves. And this also meant a shift from having former military leaders, including a lot of decorated war heroes who had led the NRA uh, over for over a century in the past, being replaced like people like Harlan Carter, who was a former Border Patrol, leaf, border patrol chief himself, a convicted murderer who later had his murder conviction overturned on appeal on grounds of self-defense and if you want to understand this shift this change carter came out uh, uh, very strongly against government overreach and he started doing that even before he took over the nra and once he took over the nra his position and to pick up on what carolyn said he's the only nra leader who's honestly put it out there this is the price of freedom these people that die and these and the gun violence, even back then, he told the, the Washington Post, Michael Howell, uh, Powell, uh, around 2000. This is the price of freedom, as um, Bill O'Reilly also said after the Las Vegas shoot, shooting. This is the view of the modern NRA, but they bend over backwards to not say it out loud. And the change meant that gun rights became paramount. For instance, the editor of the of the, of the American Rifleman, the previous editor before the revolt had been recruited from the Saturday Evening Post, the literary magazine. Now everything has was was set up under a new director of publications to make sure everything told the line. And again, they also ended that practice of financial transparency. As long as you were uh, from 1925, as long as you are supporting gun rights, they weren't worried about what happened in the books. And that's when the entire culture and ethos of the NRA uh, shifted from a gun club into an organization by Carter's words t- taking an unyielding uh, view of gun rights. And as uh, LaPierre later said, an absolutist. Yeah, I
2: think one of the things I love about that is the uh, editor that rolled in, he was like maybe a guy with like an ascot and a tweed jacket that liked to have tea time. And they were like, you're fine. <laughs> we're going a different direction.
6: <laughs> it formally happened in 1977 at the NRA convention in Cincinnati. As they got down to business, there was a showdown. Hunters and sportsmen versus gun rights activists. The National Rifle Association convention in Cincinnati went into overtime last night, a stormy all-night session. When it was over, some dissident members had taken control of the 400,000 member organization. What it means is even stricter support for the right to bear arms and against gun control.
2: So a group of, quote, reformers led by a former NRA president, Harlan Carter, and an outspoken gun rights advocate, Neil Knox, brewed all this tension inside the organization over the leadership's wavering stance on gun control. 30,000 delegates showed up to the annual meeting on May 21st, 77. Reformers were wearing orange hunting caps, and communicated via walkie-talkie around the convention floor. The NRA leaders shut off the air conditioning to try to combat these guys. (laughs) The meeting lasted until 4 a.m. This is crazy, man. It lasted until 4 a.m., a vote by a 1,000 life members, ousted NRA's chief operating and executive vice president Maxwell Rich and his cronies. Carter was selected as Rich's replacement.
4: And this is how democracy dies to a bunch yeah. of sweaty men in orange vests with hunting caps talking to each other in walkie talkies.
2: God, that's so crazy. I've never, sh- like, you never see this at like a furry convention. They're always so friendly. You know, like <laughs> people get ousted there.
4: There is a lot of sweating, though. If the air conditioning goes off, it is not good to be at a furry convention.
2: No, very bad. Pittsburgh, notably, biggest furry convention in the country, I believe, still. So, shout out to my hometown. (laughs) For more on the NRA and LaPierre, one of the proudest moments. For more on the NRA and LaPierre, I spoke with Kurt Anderson, author of Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, a 500-Year History. One of my favorite books, actually, and an account of the mass reality distortion field that has permeated American culture since its inception. Kurt, it's great to see you here in the virtual studio. You know, I love your book, Fantasyland. I've gifted it to people. Uh, It's always like, it's like a quick reference guide for crazy in America. What made you want to write this book and how did you feel personally about America after you wrote it?
3: Well, I guess, uh, thank you. I've uh, been thinking about it for a long time. I've been thinking about it for quite a few years. And, you know, I was, for the first 15 years of this century, I was writing just novels and really wasn't, didn't have a big nonfiction book in mind. But I kept thinking about this whole set of things that kind of take over the Republican Party by by Christian religious Extremists driving my Republican parents out of the party, for instance, and just the general as as Stephen Colbert said back in the day, true the truthiness that had taken over. And wh- where did this, all this come from? How did this happen? Why are we so? Why why has this gotten so out of control? So I just began reading and researching and thinking about it, and and suddenly I figured I had a book, and and uh, wasn't going to write it right away. But then my publisher, when I told her kind of the very basic idea, this is, you know, a year and a half before Donald Trump ever appeared as a presidential candidate. She said, you know, that sounds kind of timely. Maybe you should do that now. So I did. I started it and and finished it, you know, just as Donald Trump was getting the nomination and it came out just as Donald Trump became president. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because it was this it was this strange argument back then, and when I was writing it, right, this, we we we've lost control of reality, and and the gatekeepers haven't done their job, and this party is a fan, fantasy party of believes all kinds of crazy conspiracies, and on and on and on. Well, but but like, are people really going to buy this? I thought, and then suddenly I had my poster boy, effectively, who embodied. This this <laughs> <laughs> this history this argument and there it was so um that's that's how it came to be and uh, you know five years later uh, almost since it came out uh, it it has not become less timely you know I mean QAnon didn't yeah. exist for instance when the book came out QAnon came into being like literally weeks after Fantasyland came out and and I felt like well there's there's another one that, that I was I, I guess I was right you know so anyway that's how it <laughs> came to be and 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 and, and you know we're Talking about guns, and we can't stop talking about guns in this country because it's such a, again, such a peculiar and horrific American outlier thing that we have of too many guns and too many killings and too much gun violence. And, and that, that took up a whole chapter in Fantasyland because, you know, it's my, 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 my point in Fantasyland was, or one of my points, was that people can believe all kinds of things that I think are nuts but as long as they don't hurt me or hurt other people or cheat other people, whatever. That's it's America. But you know the, this this craziness, this gun mania, is something that is is nuts. But obviously, hurts and kills tens of thousands of people every year. You know, there's a
2: there's a line in your book: a religion that doesn't get believers' blood pumping right now can be like a marriage without sex. I feel like that, like like guns
3: or the NRA are, are kind of like a religion or a death cult in the same kind of vein. And I have come to to think that too. And I, I resisted that idea of, of the death cult thing, but certainly, but but th- frankly, the the, the anti vaccine, the behavior of the Republican Party and the right during the pandemic, really changed my mind on that. To think it's not just you know, a figure of speech, it's it's real. A, a large part of what's driving the Republican Party and the right is this this kind of nihilistic fascination with wish for death. Uh, on and on in the case of the pandemic and guns before it and after it, mass death, you know, I wrote a piece about how it was a kind of form of modern mass human sacrifice uh, to, to sort of, among other things, uh, Reinforce the power of, of that faction of American politics, and it's working for them, and it's 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 insane to me. And so, you asked first, how, how did I come to feel about America? I mean, not hopeless, but I'm basically an optimistic person, and it it made me feel more despairing when I finished the book than I ever had. You know, uh, because. Unlike, I mean, it's hard to fix the other things that are wrong with this country, you know, economic inequality and, and all the rest. But at least those were, those were things that were done and they can be fixed, right? The idea of, of this, this craziness of, for instance, equating guns with making them a necessary icon of freedom for lots of people and the whole range of, of, to my mind, nutty thinking and fantastical thinking, you can't really fix that, you know? I mean, certainly not anytime soon and, or maybe ever. And, and you know, once I realized that, I, that it was a kind of chronic American condition that in the last few decades, last half century really, became this acute condition, I, I don't know. I, I didn't lose all hope, but I... I, I it's it's hard to maintain a uh, a sense of a sense of hope these days for me.
2: Yeah, I'm the child of Iranian immigrants and you know we came to America. My family came to America because they were like, "Oh, they're crazy. It's a theocracy in Iran. We got to get out of there. It's going to be awful." And my family biggest holiday in our house, Thanksgiving, 4th of July. We got double American flags up every year. And during the Trump administration, even in the last couple of years, I've asked my mom. I was like, Mom, I know it's still better than Iran. I know we're still way ahead of Iran right now. But do you think that we're getting closer? She goes, they are trying. And it's like it's when I hear the most patriotic human being I know for America say something like that. It gives me pause. And your book was kind of like a handbook to kind of encapsulate and kind of give a a, a structure to how all of these things happened. And just to even speak to the NRA, can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of the NRA? Because it wasn't always this
3: kind of religious zealot kind of organization. Not at all. When I was a little kid in Nebraska, and I learned to shoot a twenty two at summer camp, and was in Boy Scouts, and the, the 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 pamphlets and manuals and training that you got was from the NRA. You know, and it wasn't like oh my God, the NRA is indoctrinating. So no, it was it was all about. Yeah. <laughs> marksmanship, right, and conservation and and all that. And and people hunted a lot more than they do now. Um, And then, you know, and back then also, I mean, it's really important to note that, you know, half of Americans had a gun and it was a gun that they used to hunt. It wasn't like to protect themselves with a shotgun or a rifle. It wasn't to, like, use in some fantasy of fighting terrorists or all the fantasies that have come to be the reasons for people owning guns. So today, many, many fewer people own guns, like a fifth of Americans or a quarter of Americans own guns, but they have three or four and uh, rather than one. And this tiny percentage, who are the tiny, the tail wagging the dog of the NRA, wagging the dog of Republicans, 3% of Americans own half the guns, right? They own an average of 17 apiece. Yeah. Now, Oof. why do you need 17 guns unless... <laughs> You're nuts or or are starting, want to start uh, an insurgency. I I don't know. So, uh, and of course, back then, you know, uh, there were not uh, military style assault weapons sold. That didn't happen until, you know, the last generation or so when the AR-15 and guns like it became a a kind of deadly toy to appeal to these fantasies. And now more of those are sold than any other kind of gun in America, like, Couple of billion dollars worth every year. So, anyway, the, the no the NRA was was just a you know a, a kind of outdoors thing, and then and then in the late seventies, at the same time, and, and I wrote another book called Evil Geniuses about this takeover, this paradigm shift to the far right in the late seventies and eighties in America. Uh, it happened simultaneously in, in this very. Extreme way within the NRA. This forty-five years ago, last month at a convention of the NRA, the, the the right-wing extreme right faction that was there took over from the kind of sleepy. Eh, we're not really about guns; we're about magazines and 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 conservation. They took over. the The, the right wingers took over, and 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 you know, it wasn't instant, but over the next decade, uh, that they, they became more and more. In control, and and they became more and more of a lobbying organization in Washington than they'd ever been before, and uh, and 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 you know that was that so that rode along with the Reagan Revolution, so called, and 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 really now looking back at that, I mean you see that the NRA and its increasingly radical positions was a kind of. Was a kind of avant garde for the Republicans. Like, wow, look at what they got away with. Wow, look at what the. So they, they just kept going further and further and pushing it farther and farther during the 80s and 90s. And by the turn of the century, really, in their radical way, they, they were, they and the Republican Party were, it was really just a, a faction, a leading faction at that point of the Republican Party. And of course, haven't even gone into the degree to which it, it is a lobby for the US gun manufacturers as well was a little bit back in the day, but now it is it is significantly that. And now that the gun business is whatever it is, a $30 billion a year business, that's it's not everything, but it's a big part of it. And it's how they use the this as you say, religious aspect of what we used to call gun nuts uh, when I was a kid. Uh, um, as their political foot soldiers
2: now. They're now we call them gun fetishists, or Ellie Mistal calls them amosexuals. Which
3: <laughs> that's I think nice. Is really, that's, that's, that's a nice. nice one. That's nice. And and the thing about and again in the, in the way that you know we see so many you know leader far right leaders Of the Republican Party who you think like does Ted Cruz really believe that? Does Josh Hawley really believe that? How, how much are they cynics and how much are they true believers? How much are they just going for the fame and fortune and power and Wayne LaPierre, who has been the head of the NRA for as long as you've been alive, <laughs> it, you know, didn't start out as, a, as any kind of true believer. He wasn't an outdoorsman. He was just a, a, a liberal political nerd who, who was a Democrat and a, and a McGovern volunteer in 1972 and worked for a Democratic legislator and then got a job as a junior lobbyist at the NRA, just as this this right wing push there happened, and he rode that, you know, to become the head of it fifteen years later, and he's been the head of it, notwithstanding all of his misdeeds uh, for thirty odd years. I think it's incredible how he has, yeah,
2: risen to power. He was such a nerdy guy; he probably would have been just like a, like a poli sci professor if he, you know, didn't become. The head of the NRA,
3: or or the head of the you know textile fiber you know trade association, (laughs) or whatever. I mean, you know, he just happened on this and wrote it as it was as it was you know becoming one of the most important and consequential lobbying organizations in America.
2: Welcome back. Just a year after this revolt, LaPierre joins the NRA in 78 as a lobbyist. And he didn't know much about guns. In part of the Frontline documentary, a former NRA spokesman, John Aquino, said this of LaPierre, The safest place you could be with Wayne and a gun back then was in a different state because he really didn't know much about anything about guns. (laughs) Right, it's less insane. He was a quiet lobbyist for the NRA, but he was good at navigating between the sportsmen and the gun lobbyists and like the, the the fanatic gun people. And so he would always be in the middle. That way, he could always keep both sides happy, and that is how he leveled up and became executive vice president and CEO in 1991. And when the Clinton administration came into power, the NRA had the war they had always needed. The assault weapons ban came through, banning semi-automatic rifles, and the Brady Bill was passed. By the way, Reagan got shot that day, <laughs> and that's why the Brady Bill got passed. But Reagan didn't even come out and strongly support the Brady Bill, which is insane. <laughs> so this is where we find the famous fundraising letter from Wayne LaPierre. And it's this is like one of the craziest, like all-caps letters if I wish this came out in like the social media age because it would have just it set fire to the internet. People would have went nuts. But he wrote this in a fundraising letter to members. And I won't read the whole letter, just some excerpts, but it's amazing. Just jump in whenever you want here because this shit is wild. <laughs> I've worn out a lot of my shoe leather walking the halls of Congress. <laughs> I've met key leaders. I've talked with old allies. I've met with new congressmen and many staff members what I'm hearing and seeing concerns me many of our new congressmen are ignoring America's 80 million gun owners some have forgotten what we did to elect them others say our demands to restore our constitutional freedoms are politically out of line
4: don't get me wrong
2: yeah I'm sure a congressman was like
4: (laughs) your demands for (laughs) constitutional freedom are out of line I'm sure yeah I'm sure a politician said that to him
2: don't get me wrong not all of them are like this. Senator Phil Graham, House Speaker Newt Gingrich, Congressman Bill McCullum, Bill Brewster, and Harold Volkman are all coming to our aid. But to many others,
4: are not. You can always rely on Newt Gingrich. <laughs> Old Newt. Unless you're married yeah. to him.
2: <laughs> and without a major show of force by America's 80 million gun owners... America will resume its long march down the road to ban guns and the destruction of the Constitution and the loss of every sacred freedom. I want you to know I'm not
4: looking for a fight.
2: <laughs> That's yeah. the man writing 10 pages about how he wants <laughs> to fight the government.
4: Also, the 80 million number with uh, you know scaling for population back then, uh, that has to be an exaggeration. I think that at the time that would maybe mean 80 million guns, but not 80 million gun owners. Cause you're always talking like 40, it's like 42% of Americans always own guns, but maybe the listeners can do the math on that. If we're talking like 1992, 80 million gun owners is more than 42% of the population, right?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think That's gotta be. An exaggeration, And also, how do you even calculate those numbers? The only way you would be able to calculate the gun owners is if you had a registration of all <laughs> guns
6: and their owners.
2: <laughs> but when you consider the facts of our current situation, you too will see we have no other choice. Fact one. The Congress-leading anti-gunners, Senator Dianne Feinstein, Ted Kennedy, and Congressman Charles Schumer and Major Owens all survived through the last elections. Wow, I can't, quote like, calling out these people, like, Ted Kennedy... Like, I know he's gone. I don't know Major Owens, but Chuck Schumer and Diane Feinstein, like they've been around this. They've been doing this for this long.
4: Yeah, but it's like a, it's, it's crazy. also it's also especially toned to you survive through this election, considering Ted Kennedy's brother was murdered. And yeah, and, uh, and uh, then Diane yeah. Feinstein's rise to politics is directly because she was at the assassination of Harvey Milk. Yeah. Like it's like literally people that have like directly experienced gun violence to be like, unfortunately, they survived. It's crazy.
2: They've pledged to fight to the bitter end for Brady, too, and its ammo taxes, licensing, and registration schemes, gun rationing bureaucrats with the power to determine if you need a gun, and yes, the repeal of the Second Amendment. God, they were talking about it all the way back then. It doesn't matter to them that the Brady Law has become one more tool that government agents are using to deny constitutional rights of law-abiding citizens. It doesn't matter to them that the semi-auto ban gives jackbooted government thugs, more power to take away our constitutional rights, break in our doors, seize our guns, destroy our property, and even injure or kill us.
4: I like that's so crazy. It's just like what's what's amazing about every single one of these people, though, uh, except for their exact that I'm not I don't want to paint with a such broad brush, but I will say the overlap between these people and people that also support police violence against minorities like 100% of the time it's like quite a bit now there are some of these some of these people actually want to kill the cops actually but they all live in like the woods I don't think they go to conventions (laughs) but it's just it's funny it's funny yeah this fear of tyranny until it becomes about a different population and that's why the NRA even under uh, Wayne LaPierre like anytime a black person who was legally openly openly carrying got like murdered by a police officer the NRA never said a word about yeah
2: them. they always they didn't come out uh for Phil, uh, philando castile that yep. one that was a that guy was a legitimate gun owner
4: that was totally and that was, that would
2: have been a layup
4: yeah that's totally the whole nras thing and they just they just didn't mention it <laughs> which like tells you everything <laughs> about them as an organization right sums it all up
2: schumer feinstein kennedy owens and the rest of the anti-gunners want more and more control the gun banners simply don't like you they don't trust you they don't want you to own a gun. <laughs> they, right? They you, they don't like you.
4: And they'll stop at nothing until they force you to turn your over your guns to the government. I like this version of the Democratic Party that will stop at nothing until it achieves its objectives and is and is actually going to go into the countryside. It's like it's it's just so great like, you know, if you're anybody who's even remotely left-leaning hearing about this alternate version <laughs> of what 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 yeah. has to be like one of the most ineffective political parties, it's the only party that you know it's like you know it's like the American public just if you take partisanship out of it, sides with them on so many issues and they just like fumble at the one yard line all the time constantly. <laughs> uh, you know,
2: this next part is is interesting because it's um it's how he kind of gets the moderates involved here and folds them into this kind of radical um thought, right. He's talking about Bill Clinton here. His interior and agricultural departments have set their sights on closing hunting lands. And his environmental protection agency is attempting to take jurisdiction over existing uses of land. This, of course, includes gun ranges and spent shot. What's more, gun owners aren't the only ones Clinton's EPA has set its sights on. They're after fishermen, too. They want to ban (laughs) the use of small lead fishing sinkers, and of the gravest concern, they want to stop the home casting of these sinkers. <laughs> if fishing sinkers are on the Clinton bureaucrats list, you know what's next. Lead shot, lead bullets, bullet castings, and reloading.
4: So, it's lead is poisonous. Yeah, it doesn't go in water. So, but I do like the leap in logic to where it's like, uh, you know, if they won't let them dump lead in your water, they then won't (laughs) let you shoot a gun. And it's like, those are like the same things. They don't want lead in your
2: bloodstream either when you get shot.
4: It's just, yeah. It's so weird. This is such a tenuous clip to like, yeah, it's uh, like linked to the, you know, the like responsible hunting and fishermen people. I like how in this alternate universe, like, Bill Clinton is just campaigning only on environmental protection. Like, in this version of history, he's just like, he's just like, I don't know. He's like Ralph Nader, like, in this version of history, right? Yep. Yeah, when he was just, like, a corporate Democrat. He was just, it's so strange. <laughs> he passes, like, all these Reagan bills. This is, where like, yeah. this, is, this is where, like, the Democratic Party, it's so hilarious. The Democratic Party is just whatever the Republicans used to do. But like for the Republicans, it's always they're always malice China. Glass Steagall
2: you know? came out during the Clinton administration that that <laughs> divided uh you know the the savings and the investment side of of the business, and so it's it's crazy what happened. Yeah, yeah. Oh, here's a good one. Here's a good one. And the Clinton administration, if you have a badge, you have the government's go-ahead to harass and intimidate, even murder
4: law-abiding citizens.
2: Okay. So this is where we we could see he's like a little ACAB here, you know? I see you, Wayne.
4: Yeah, well, yeah. And and this is for the, you know, the, you know, what's his name? Something Bundy. That guy, that rancher. Those are those people. They they will kill a cop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Randy Weaver at uh, Ruby Ridge. No, uh, Amon Bundy. Oh, Amon Bundy. Yes, yes. The modern one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All those, all these people. Oh, the Timothy McVeigh people. Exactly. This is also speaking to them too. Yeah. Oh no, and you'll see that in a minute here. Uh,
2: here goes. He goes on to talk about some of these people as well. Randy Weaver at Ruby Ridge, Waco, and the Branch Davidians. Not too long ago, it was unthinkable for the federal agents wearing Nazi bucket helmets and black stormtrooper uniforms to attack law-abiding citizens. Not today,
4: not with Clinton. I love the Star Wars reference here. Like, come on. Everybody, I just want to tell you that as my first act as president, I'm going to dress all police officers in Star Wars uniforms and start killing all the whites. I want to thank everybody <laughs> for electing me president <laughs> in this country.
3: <laughs> it's so, so crazy. May the force, may the force be with you.
4: <laughs> our stormtroopers are gonna have better aim than the ones in the movies. That's what we're gonna do. Fact number four: they've launched a new wave
2: of brainwashing propaganda aimed at further destroying our constitutional freedoms. CBS ABC, NBC, USA Today, Time, Newsweek, and the New York Times have launched another round of phony polls and slanted stories to help the anti-gunners achieve their goals.
4: I always like it how the media conspiracy is always all-encompassing. It's like CBS, ABC, NBC, Marie Claire Magazine, The New Yorker Magazine, (laughs) Muscle Magazine, Car Enthusiast. It's all part of a conspiracy. It's like, what? (laughs)
2: Uh, Their latest poll shows 70% of Americans support the semi-auto assault weapon ban. That's simply not true. When it's explained... This is great. This is priceless. When it's explained to them that semi-autos are used in less than a fraction of 1% of crimes, that the ban only affects the law-abiding citizens, and that the ban is only one more way to deny constitutional rights to the law-abiding supporters... The support for the ban drops 30%. So if you just influence the people and say, what if I now told you that the assault weapons ban is actually trying to take away your constitutional
4: rights? Does that change your opinion? Yeah, it's so funny in context reading this quote, right? Because that percentage is probably roughly similar. You know, Maybe it's in the 60s at this point, but it's still a majority. And since the assault weapons ban of the Clinton administration right, has passed, right? The AR fifteen has become the absolute undisputed weapon of choice for mass shooters. And it, there's the ones it's always double digit body counts with that weapon, right? Oh,
2: absolutely. Since since it like lapsed and they didn't renew it, yeah, the, the numbers of shootings, the numbers of mass shootings and all with the um the AR fifteen, or, or predominantly with the AR fifteen rather. He goes on to ask for NRA members to sign multiple petitions at the end of the letter. And here's another quote from it where he's, he's quoting like these other areas and these other petitions. You could see it when jackbooted government thugs wearing black, armed to the teeth, break down a door, open fire with an automatic weapon and kill or maim law abiding citizens.
4: Jesus, that's God. just the war on drugs in a black neighborhood, though. That's what's so hilarious. Yeah, like he's he's scaring people with like what is happening in South Central Los Angeles at the at the time. Right? Can you
2: imagine that? <laughs> can you imagine that? Yeah. If you're renewing your regular membership, you can include. So, the, wait, wait. Here's my fa- favorite part. So you got it. You gave he gives you all of this juice, right? Right, and then. <laughs> And then he gives, you the, he gives you the real money shot here where he's asking for it. If you're renewing your regular membership, you can include the full payment of $35 of the first installment of $17.50. If you can, if you can I hope you'll consider upgrading your membership to the next class, even becoming an NRA Life member. If you'd like to go above and beyond the call of duty, I hope you add a special contribution, 15, 20, 25, 30, 50, or more to your renewal payment. Whatever you can do, please do it today. With your NRA membership renewal and special contribution, I'll have the financial ammo. I need to keep Congress focused on the mission we've assigned to them. Literally threatening them, with weapons (laughs) so he sent this letter and it went viral as far as you can get viral in the 90s and he went on television to respond to this and he stuck to his guns because at this point he sees that his whole organization is behind him and they want this they are fired up the fear tactics worked they believe that clinton is out to take all of their guns Here's him. I believe this is um, Tim Russert interviewing
4: him. I love how a conservative Democrat from Arkansas (laughs) like
3: (laughs) Jesus, right? Aren't you concerned when you say Nazi bucket helmets, uh, government thugs kicking down doors, killing, maiming people?
7: Aren't you inciting people? Aren't you willing now to apologize for the tone of this letter? Those words are not far. In fact, they're a pretty close description of what's happening in the real world. And in response to that, many mainstream Republicans, George H.W. Bush being the leading example,
5: said, this this is not the NRA I'm a member of.
6: President Bush resigned his lifetime membership in the NRA.
5: President Clinton lined up the leadership of the National
6: Rifle Association, his crosshairs today. The NRA fundraising letter calling federal ATF agents, quote, jackbooted thugs. Before long, LaPierre was forced to backtrack. Wayne, right up front, why the apology? Well, Larry, if you say something and you offend people and you didn't mean to, what you do is you apologize. We never just meant shoot that him. letter to broad brush all of federal law enforcement, all of BATF, or
0: all of law oh enforcement in general. Oh, my
2: God. Are you kidding me? I love it. We just walked it back like such a wimp.
4: You know, it's important as a sensitive man... To apologize when you accuse the United States government of carrying out a Nazi Holocaust against law-abiding gun owners without any evidence to support your claims.
2: What did you think he just he wrote that letter and then someone's like, "Hey, um, uh, Wayne, do you want to you want to do a read through on this? No, no, just send it out. Just send it out. It's good. I, straight from the dome. I don't need to reread. Yeah, it's a- but people weren't happy. Of it.
4: Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's like it's actually kind of cool doing this story because now you're seeing the beginnings of the don't ever apologize moment that we're in now. To where just like any extremist now, the key is to just like triple down and just find your people on the Internet. Uh, But like people have a little bit of accountability during this time. It's also funny seeing how this splits the Republican Party, but like the crazy people in the Republican Party totally win. Right. It's like, you know, yeah, the Bushes are like trying to distance themselves from it. And it's like they're going to lose complete control by the time you get to, you know, like 2016.
2: It, it's a slow it's a slow bleed. That's what's also crazy about it. You know, and th- these these kinds of things like the crazier you are, the more you know dedicated you are, the more organized you will become.
4: That's the other thing here. Yeah. Like when Bob Dole was like, uh, you know, in his last years, like he, he endorsed Trump for president just out of party loyalty. But he, he's just like he's like. I don't think these guys, people even consider me a republic. <laughs> he's like he's like he's like, I have no idea what these people are talking about. And it's like it's yeah. funny, it's like Bob Dole, he's like the he's the representation of the Republican Party. By the time he gets to yep. twenty sixteen, he's like, This is some wild no, stuff in here, guys.
2: <laughs> no, he's almost completely evaporated.
6: <laughs>
4: so
2: people, you know, at this time they were not happy and and this is the nineties and people saw that the NRA was trying to influence politics, influence society. So let's go back to Kurt for what else was happening around that time and perhaps one of my favorite quotes from his book and and the one that you heard at the top of the show and and really what, what got us cooking on this series. there's a quote another quote from your book that uh, I actually when I was on Sirius a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were talking about this I like remembered it and I brought it out and I read it on air and I, and then like Karen Hunter the host was like you guys got to do Wayne LaPierre I was like you know what fucking we're going to do it and so it was uh, Ju- chief justice Warren Burger no less a figure than chief justice Warren Burger a conservative appointed by Nixon complained after he retired that the second amendment quote has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat, fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime, end quote. That he might as well have just had a gun himself and been shooting it in the air, screaming that for a show called Fraudsters. I mean, it's
3: incredible when I read that. What do you think he was really, what was he talking about? Well, what he was talking about, and he God knows, he, he didn't, I don't know if he saw what was coming, but it was, it was still, the, 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 the whole regard, the judicial regard, the Supreme Court interpretation of what the Second Amendment meant, meant, when it even came up, it wasn't a big deal, right? It just wasn't a big deal. It was like, well, that's this weird thing from the 18th century, like, ah, militias, ah, whatever. But by the time he said that in the early 90s, the, the NRA and the, and, the, and the gun fetishists and the extreme, gun extremists... We're trying to reinterpret the meaning of the Second Amendment to mean that every American could have not just a gun, but essentially, almost practically, they, they wished, and they're getting there, any kind of gun, as many guns, without reg- regulation, without control, as they wished. And he was saying that. he, had, The chief justice, the, the Nixon-appointed chief justice, former chief justice, Warren Burger, was saying, That's, this is nonsense. This is not what the Second Amendment has ever meant, and certainly not... Two hundred years later, uh, you know, um, it was it was passed when back when guns were muskets that if you could fire four rounds a minute, you were doing great, right? I mean, it, it, they are different machines today, so that's what he meant. And and uh, you know, did he know, did he have a vision that a dozen years later, the Supreme Court would do indeed what the gun nuts were ho- hoping to do and what they'd been doing with the fraud that Chief Justice Berger was talking about and reinterpret the meaning of the Second Amendment, they did it. They, effect, they, they absolutely did it in 2008. Uh, you know, again, before that, it was about a militia. It was about a well-organized militia, as the language of the, of the Second Amendment says. And of course, ironically, as we were also having the right in the Federalist Society right Insist that, no, no, we have to interpret the Constitution according to its original language, its originalism. It's all about the original language. Well, except in the case of the Second Amendment. Yeah, Uh, exactly. Because we're going to ignore that half of it that talks about the well-organized militia. But they did what he was warning about in in the early 90s, uh, you know, a generation later, and here we are. And so that's, that's what he was talking about, and that's what happened. And, and, and again, in the 90s, that was when Wayne LaPierre wrote this crazy 10-page fundraising letter to his members about how the booted government thugs of the Clinton administration were going to take your guns and kill you, literally, said kill you, and bust down your doors to take your guns and all your other rights. You know, and then a few days after that letter went out, uh, two things happened. George H.W. Bush, the former president... Uh, resigned from the NRA, and Timothy McVeigh, the the anti gun regulation activist, uh, blew up the federal building in Oklahoma Jesus. City and killed 168 people. So that's the '90s were the pivot point for this for this craziness. You know, it had ha- it had taken a generation to get there, and now it took another generation to get to where we are now.
1: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
0: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.
2: Big thanks to Kurt for that. So not only was Wayne LaPierre's NRA pushing for legislation and fundraising dollars, they were pushing judicial interpretations as well. See, it's not enough to just influence politics. You have to actually influence the judiciary. And while they do watch the news, these judges, of course, are humans. They watch the news. What they really watch is legal scholarship. So this guy, Stephen Halbrook, is one of the handful of NRA-backed legal, quote, scholars that wrote two books and 13 law review articles on the insurrectionist theory, which is what we hear a lot today. And this is what the stance of the NRA is today. The reason that we have the NRA is to defend against the government literally attacking you. You heard it in the letter. You've heard it today in the media. Remember just i don't know if you remember this but do you remember there was like a theory that came out that the nazis disarmed the jews and that's how the holocaust
4: happened i actually i actually have a stand up bit about that talking
2: <gasps> do you really i do is it recorded can yeah. we
4: do you want to do it yeah i can do the bit yeah i go uh, you know they always pass out this meme that says you know it's always a false attribution of a quote to a picture of hitler so it says, in order to conquer a country, you must first disarm its populace, which which is uh, which is like you know an allusion to this idea that uh you know uh, Jews were disarmed during the Nuremberg laws, right? Uh, that is true. the nuremberg Nuremberg laws did forbid Jews from purchasing weapons, but what they don't talk about was Hitler's rise uh, was also accompanied by him arming millions of Germans. he actually in order to conquer the world as the master race he gave millions of germans high-powered weaponry so the idea of hitler as like gun control advocate makes no sense yeah it's it's
2: really kind of insane uh and so but who who made that claim though Stephen halbrook that's who created that myth and let's go to frank smith about that quote uh from his book because he really does a great takedown of it
7: again after the second inauguration of barack obama a book was released that had been whose research had been partly funded by the nra this book gun control and the third reich disarming the jews and and enemies of the state this book alleges uh again funded by richard uh or, or uh, written by stephen p hallbrook who is a marginal figure in the world of uh, academia, and certainly uh, in the world of scholarship, uh, scholarship about the Holocaust, but who is a popular and were well-known gun rights litigator. He claims that the Nazis used prior gun control wars dating back to the Weimar Republic to then go and seize weapons from Jews, disarm them, and thereby enable uh, the Holocaust. However, in the back of his book, on page 181, out of a 230-page book, a chapter, uh, uh, the penultimate graph before the con- penultimate chapter before the conclusion, he says he admits something which seems to disprove his entire thesis, <laughs> which for some reason he has <laughs> in the back of the book. But this is a book also published by a think tank, the Independent Institute, which um, is also which is where the, the NRA funds have come <laughs> through. So there was no real academic peer review in this book uh, that I can see. And what he writes in back is police reports. Listing weapons seized from Jews have been difficult to locate. <laughs> Many such records may have been destroyed during the war, either by the Nazis <laughs> themselves so or due to Allied bombings. Right, it's this is simply not credible. Every other known aspect of the Holocaust had the records that survived uh, uh, by and large, if not completely intact. As we know, the Nazis kept meticulous records. So it's hard to believe that the records of these seizures, which he's claiming exists, which he can't find actual evidence of, uh, so were somehow destroyed by the Nazis or an allied bombing. Moreover, in the same book, and even in the same paragraph, he says, he lists a number of cases where weapons were seized from Jews, and they predominantly read like this. For example, a report to the commander of the of the initial police in Leipzig noted, based on the degree regarding the surrender of weapons and possessions of Jews, three Jews surrendered their slashing and thrusting weapons and one Jew surrendered his hunting rifles. So that's pretty much, there's a, other examples of this throughout the book, but beyond hunting rifles and antique weapons, they found no large caches of weapon, no sizable seizures of any weapons at all from Jews or uh, uh, during, in the, in the years prior to the Holocaust. You gotta be fucking kidding me,
3: man.
4: Yeah, I like this alternate history, too, that the Holocaust and World War II wouldn't have happened if there would have been this just, like, well-armed Jewish minority that would have pushed back and taken Berlin. Again, against the tanks, (laughs) against the tanks,
2: the German (laughs) Nazi tanks. (laughs)
4: It's like, yeah, it's like, it's like Hitler like took over Europe in like four years. And it's like, well, if only, if only like eight rabbis with rifles, you know, they, they would have totally, totally changed yeah. the tide of history, you know. I mean, it's just like this plays to van- you know, it's like this argument so much plays to vanity to of these people, right? This idea that, oh, me and my assault rifle, I'll be able to resist the tyranny of the government. It's like they're just going to like bomb you from yep. a drone. Like, they don't even have to even, they don't even have to even like sacrifice a life to even kill you. Like, the Nazis had
2: Blitzkrieg. They leveled London. Like, for Christ's sakes, what is, what are we talking about here? It's not like the English didn't have an army. Like, they, they, what were, what were armed <laughs> Jews going to do against air and tanks? Like, what, what, this is just, I can't with
4: this. The, the Jewish people of Germany, you know, if they were all armed, would have definitely been a more effective fighting force than the Soviet Union. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's I mean, it's like it's 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 the it's the type of stuff to where the fact that even gets published, it's so absurd on its face. And this is why that doesn't go through peer review, because people like like uh, an expert in history would laugh, would would not even see this as even worthy of even writing a review about. And the only reason they would write a review about it is because uh, people are reading it and taking it seriously and they don't want people to. And Justin,
2: this is what I'm trying to convey or what we're hopefully trying to convey to everyone is that this type of writing permeated the entire gun rights community. This is now cultural like knowledge that they've all adopted. And it wasn't just Halbrook either. In 1994, a woman named Joyce Lee Malcolm, another author, published To Keep and Bear Arms, The Origins of an Anglo-American Right." And so this was promoted in the American Rifleman. She asserted that the individual right was actually part of the English constitutional law for 100 years before the founders drafted the Bill of Rights. So basically saying that, they, that it existed. She says that the Second Amendment was a legacy of the English Bill of Rights. So that before, way before that man came to America, the English had this existing right. To carry arms. She says this, but in the again, in the same piece of work, she concedes that despite this, the government had a multitude of restrictions on gun ownerships and weapons in the lead up to the English Bill of Rights, including, oh, these are priceless, a 1541 law prohibiting persons with less than a hundred pounds a year in income from owning guns. Okay, so poor people, no, you can't have a gun. Mm. In 1655, that even militia members must store guns safely and that non-militia gun owners must have their weapons inventoried. Oh, a national registration that existed before the English Bill of Rights. What do you know?
4: Yeah, it, and you know, anytime you hear Anglo-American and the right starts using that, you also need to know that you know that's racial yep. dog whistle stuff, right? It's like, is is it to be an American patriot? Do is there any other time where we're celebrating the English tradition? <laughs> <laughs> it's like no, and then it's also contemporary England to them is the Nazi Germany scenario. That they that they fear. Right. So when they're talking about like Anglo-American tradition, they're really talking about like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, like identity politics. Right. And Uh, is it so wrong, Justin,
2: to just support a European heritage? Is that so wrong?
4: Yeah, but you have to do your own European (laughs) thing. You have to. uh, I need you to eat strudel. Like I want it to be really European. I don't want like some racist nonsense about pan Europe because that's not real. I want you to eat your strudel in front of me. I want uh all co- yeah. I want bangers and mm-hmm. mash I want to, I want to see you eating that I want it to like some kind of weird boiled cabbage with no seasoning <laughs> that's the white stuff I want I want to see your original white Stuff. Don't try to be like all year, all European. You don't get to claim yeah. the whole continent. Yeah, <laughs> you don't get to claim pizza if you live in Ireland
2: <laughs> or, even, <Yeah>. or even, <laughs> even Spain, man. You don't get to do it.
4: I want leader hosing. <laughs> I want like I want your specific European thing. Because anytime you can just claim the whole white civilization thing, it's always yeah. some racist <laughs> stuff. Or if you do claim uh, broad just whiteness, you have to make it white American stuff. You don't get to then yep. claim Europe. Because that's not what existed in Europe. So you need to wear a Larry Bird jersey.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, you need to listen to only maybe Eminem. I want to see a whole slushie from Sonic, like a whole
2: sixty-four ounce one. <laughs> <laughs>
4: you have to. You, your traditional homes are either a cul-de-sac or a trailer. Oh um, my god! You, yeah, you has to. Be, it has to be real white. Like it has to be white American. You don't get to go back and then claim your Euro- <laughs> whiteness on Europe didn't exist there. So, Justin these two people were able
2: to not just them right they were just one, they were one of many but this is how scholarship got influence. The 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 thought leaders like the Federalist Society and shit like that, that's how they were able to help push this narrative that gets pumped out to politicians, the politicians pump it out to the uh, electorate and stuff like that, and all of a sudden everyone's brainwashed. And what was the result of this widespread disinformation campaign led by Wayne LaPierre, by the way? Somebody had to put these things into practice. As Kurt referenced when we were talking to him, Timothy McVeigh was one. Just a short time after that Jack Booted thug's letter, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing happened. And when they arrested him, he had a shirt on with the words and pictures of two of the most venerated figures in American history. One on the front was Abraham Lincoln and under were the words that John Wilkes Booth shouted as he leapt the stage in Ford's theater. Sic semper tyrannis, which means thus always to tyrants. This was to connote that that shit eventually does happen to tyrants. On the back of his shirt was a tree with droplets of blood instead of leaves. And the words of Thomas Jefferson, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants.
4: What I love about this like worldview, and again, this is you know, Timothy McVeigh was also very heavily influenced by white supremacists as well, is like the like the ethnic politics component of it, right? In this worldview, Abraham Lincoln, the guy who freed slaves, is the tyrant. Yeah. But Thomas Jefferson, the guy who owned slaves, (laughs) is the man who stands for liberty.
2: (laughs) Oh, Lord. It's so much effort. I can't imagine the energy it must take. Actually, it must not take any energy. You just kind of let it happen. And then you just, once you're on the ride, you're on the ride forever. McVeigh even traveled to the Branch Davidians to sell bumper stickers that said, fear the government that fears your gun. Another read, ban guns. Make the streets safe for a government takeover. We all know where that comes from.
4: Yeah, yeah, I, I like the, the government that is efficient enough to take over the United States. <laughs> yeah. Very, very disciplined government.
2: That's always been my favorite.
4: <laughs> yeah, I can't even get the city council yeah. to pick up my trash. But yeah, we're going to have a real... Yeah, take over from yeah, the Yeah, we federal can't get a healthcare
2: branch. website cooking in time. But no, surely they are systematically conspiring to take all of your guns away. They'll be that organized. <laughs> so this yeah. this this keeps going, and this is how it starts. You see it actually permeate the Supreme Court. In nineteen ninety seven, in Prince v. United States, Justice Thomas, in his concurring opinion, said, quote, a growing body of scholarly commentary supports the view. Of the Second Amendment as an individual right. So, Relentless Wayne and the NRA would get their win eventually in DC versus Heller, with Scalia taking the Second Amendment and completely distorting it from its original meaning. And these are guys, by the way, that always say we are going to go by the original intent, the strict constructionalists, the people that only go by what the founders intended the Constitution to mean. Yeah. But that's not the case at all.
4: (laughs) It's it's like the opposite. It's It's, actually, it's yeah, it's a radical reinterpretation. It's (laughs) it's
2: so radically (laughs) wrong. Okay. And then here's, here's a little cherry on top for you, Justin. There was an amicus brief. Amicus briefs are when you could submit a kind of friend of the court type of a brief where judges can read it and they can, you know, if there's a piece of expertise they want to get People can submit that to the court and they'll read it. And that has an influence on the outcome of a case. Who submitted an amicus brief representing 255 members of Congress, 55 senators and Vice President Dick Cheney? The Germans disarmed the Jews guy, Stephen Halbrook.
4: I like that, uh you know, Dick Cheney also signed it. Cause he then just shot his friend in the face and didn't go to the hospital with them. <laughs> <laughs> like a, that's the sacrifice we
2: make. That's a sacrifice.
4: <laughs> it's gun safety. He's like, like all drunk and just shoots a guy in the face.
2: <laughs> now I won't go into this. Like I really could go into like a whole breakdown of DC versus Heller, but I won't do that. I got this from Oyez.com. Oye.com. O-Y-E-Z. Good website. Um, So this says provisions of the District of Columbia code made it illegal to carry an unregistered firearm and prohibited the registration of handguns, though the chief of police could issue one year licenses for handguns. Okay, so you got to get a handgun. You get a license from the chief of police. The code also contained provisions that required owners of lawfully registered firearms to keep them unloaded and disassembled or bound by a trigger lock or other small device unless the firearms were located in a place of business or being used for legal recreational activities. Okay, sounds like a pre-English Bill of Rights uh, way of controlling how weapons are stored, huh? Dick Anthony Heller was a D.C. special police officer who was authorized to carry a handgun while on duty. He applied for a one-year license for a handgun he wished to keep at home, but his application was denied. Heller sued the District of Columbia. He sought an injunction against the enforcement of the relevant parts of the code and argued that they violated his Second Amendment rights to keep a functional firearm in his home without a license. The District Court dismissed the complaint. The U.S. Court of Appeals, this is how it gets appealed up, guys. So the uh, District Court of Appeals of District Columbia uh, reversed and held that the Second Amendment protects the right to keep firearms in your home. For the purpose of self-defense and the District of Columbia's requirement that firearms kept in the home be non-functional violated that right. So they're saying that this appeals court is like, no, you could have a loaded gun at home. Please do it. If it's for self-defense, you can do it. The Supreme Court ruled five to four because they're monsters. That Then Scalia writes the opinion. Now, without going into too much detail... He won. Discounts U.S.V. Miller that sawed-off shotgun case and spoke only to the type of weapon. Again, ignoring anything or any mention about the militia. He says basically that like they always they didn't say that it wasn't about the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. They were saying it was the right to bear that kind of weapon. Okay, and so he goes on to cite the English Declaration of Rights. Okay, he cites the Bill of Rights. Uh, completely copying Joyce Lee Malcolm's text but of course forgets to cite all the gun regulation that was happening around it and by the way throughout the entire opinion Scalia talks about how uh how robust the research was into finding out the true meaning of the second
4: amendment he's like i read every i read every federalist society <laughs> conference proceeding that was put out This is also the, you know, the technique, if you look at the leaked uh, draft uh, majority opinion on abortion, it's the same thing of cherry picking weird things from like the 1500s in England to justify your opinion. And it's just, it's just, it's a very obvious technique. It is gross. And of course,
2: he completely ignores talking about any reason to have guns during when the founders were drafting the Second Amendment to quell slave rebellions he even has the fucking balls to say that newly freed blacks benefited from the second amendment to defend themselves what when when did how did that go for them did that go well i'm pretty sure it was pretty a rough go for quite a while and still is frankly
4: <laughs> i think yeah i i would say that uh you know, citing reconstruction into the Jim Crow era is not a good <laughs> argument for being armed to be able to protect yourselves because, yeah, a lot of the Southern blacks would have owned guns, but it was the overwhelming force of the people around them that uh, made black people have to leave yeah. the South anyway, right? It's like, it's like that's a, that's precisely a bad argument. It would be a good argument if black people armed themselves in the American South and uh, and they're able to, like, protect themselves against the Jim Crow government's and like carve off, like, and keep their land and things, but like the opposite actually happens.
2: It's just preposterous. And on, honestly, like, this is why we need more people in the Supreme Court because fringe views like this, right? After decades of influence, can bleed into what now is law, what is now what we have to do. The NRA, backed by very conservative Republican donors, can literally change culture over decades because they are dedicated, they are smart. And they know how to influence judges. Thomas, Scalia, the NRA are fucking laughing about how they were able to assert their reality, their distorted reality on all of us.
4: Yeah. And if you're like, a, let's say you're one of our like right leaning or, you know, sort of like a moderate or independent listener. I think the good way to measure these things in the United States is the way that we do things that no other industrialized democracy does right, or even even like developing countries right the the idea of, of an eighteen year old going to like a Walmart and buying an a r fifteen is so insane, uh and like you know, when people shoot up schools here, we're like, well, what can we do when somebody shoots up a school in like northern Nigeria, they send the army yeah. after those it's people. A, this is it's a great point we
2: are supposed to be the best. We do all these advanced things in every other way, but somehow this seems to be the only archaic part or one of the biggest archaic parts of our culture. And it is American culture. It is distinctly American.
4: Yeah, well, I think this was distinctly American about it is that I don't even know if it's archaic. I think it's an invention. I think it goes along with like, Mass capitalism, right? So, as you know, gun companies become bigger, they're making yeah, more sales, they're becoming true. more profitable, and then campaign finance laws are changing, they're having more influences over politicians, right? So, it becomes this whole cycle of in the United States, right? Things that are bad for you. You know, whether it's your food or all these things. I mean, God, the only thing we've really stopped is yeah. cigarettes, right? When everybody started dying of cancer from cigarettes, like people started paying attention to that. But everything else that's like terrible for you is is still on Sugar the table.
2: everywhere, you know? and so are guns. What we'll find out next week is that the influence campaign is not cheap. And winning Wayne works hard, and he's got to help his people out. Himself, of course, as well. And he's got to reward himself, kind of, you know, like Berlusconi taking vacations, <laughs> fancy wardrobes, just not as entertaining as Berlusconi, of <laughs> course. Uh, again, big shout out to Ellie Mistal, whose book, Allow Me to Retort, was the inspiration for me to dive into all this history. Kurt Anderson, author of Fantasyland, the New York Times bestseller, How America Went Haywire, and Frank Smith, author of NRA, and Unauthorized History. Frosters is a production of Zero Cool Media and The Last Podcast Network. Katrina Chen is our production coordinator, Ian Brannan is our editor. Our theme music is by Simon Tafik. And some music in this episode was composed by Crystal's.
0: 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois.
1: Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest.